1: I have put the media team through a journey today, so I just want to apologize in advance. The, uh, the message, um, choose your own adventure, this is the second time I brought this message, I love it so much, I love this word so much. Uh, and the first time I realized, I brought it last week at another campus, and I realized it wasn't until after the service was over, I was looking at pictures of myself and I could see the words, choose your own adventure, behind me, I was like, I should have mentioned that. I should have at least one time in the entire message mentioned what it means that you choose your own adventure. That we have, a, we have an immense power in our words. The words that we speak don't just describe our life. They actually determine the world that you live in. They don't just de- describe your world. They actually determine the world that you get to live in. And uh, we see it every day. We see it all over the place. We, we live in a world... Man, I'm excited to see this movie, 2,000 Mules. I haven't seen it yet. But we live in a world that treats words as vapid and meaningless. That, that kind of, sent, we can send words out into the ether. We can send words out into social media. It doesn't matter if they're true. It doesn't matter if they build you up. It doesn't matter if they align with God's word. We can set, and we wash our hands. And we just watch the world burn. And God is saying, there's a reason. There's a reason that our words are so powerful. Um, one of the things that... Uh, one of the pictures of that, one of, the, one of the, the most visceral kind of in-your-face pictures of that is in James. It's a little bit intense, so brace yourself. James, don't mess around. But he's talking about the power of our words in James chapter 3. He says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a single spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. How do you really feel about this, James? <laughs> oh, my goodness. But we see that we can look at our world. I, love, I heard recently you guys have been moving through a, a series called Culture Clash. And is that not the battle? That we look at a, a culture of destruction in the world that people want to live their lives in, in their armor and out of their pain and out of their trauma. We're going to see a little bit later in the message that we act and we don't take responsibility for it and, and it causes devastation and the world doesn't want to take responsibility for that. That, that word hell, actually, that word hell in, uh, in that verse, in James's verse, that word actually isn't a direct usage of a word hell because the Greek... James, James wrote his letter in Greek. The Greek has words for hell. Most common word is the word Hades. We, they, they would say Hades. This word is the word Gehenna. I don't know if you've heard of Gehenna. Gehenna was a real place. So when they use the word Gehenna, they're not actually using a word like hell like we would use it. They're saying hell like this place that we all know. The people who read James' letter would have known what Gehenna was. They would have had a reference place. It was a place with a dark history. There's a place where Hundreds of years before this letter was written, babies were sacrificed to false gods. It was a place. After that, it became a place when, the, when battles were fought in that area, the soldiers' bodies were taken to Gehenna to burn. And so Gehenna over time got associated with fire and with a particular smell. There's other verses. There's other places in the Bible where it references the aroma of Gehenna, the aroma of hell. And it was just talking about is this is what happens when we don't take responsibility for our words. We operate in fear that we literally, we smell the, dev- the devastation that they're talking about. This is the cost of our words. It's like, it's like the, the word of God is almost pleading with us, please please understand how powerful your words are. That for most of us, people in in couples therapy know what I'm about to say. They know that this is true. For most of us, speaking is the most dangerous thing you do all day. (laughs) Just visit me in my sessions. You'll be like, wow. And we've been there like, we've been at the dinner table with other couples and you can hear when the very moment that the fight they're gonna have later tonight, you heard what, like, oh, you see her eyes. But we want to ask the question, why Why, so? why are our words so potentially wow. devastating? Why are they so dangerous? And I think the only way to answer that is to go to the origin, the origin of language, to go back to where, where like the power of word itself started. That in Genesis, there's this really powerful image of, of what language does, what language in the hands of the creator of Yahweh, what it does. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning... And it talks about the creation of the universe. In the first four, the first five days of that creation, they all start with, all those sentences start with the same three words. Some of the most powerful words in the Bible. It says, then God said. And when God says something, it's not like when you and I say something like, man, pizza would be really nice right now. If God were saying that, pizza would be on the table. When God says something... His voice has a generative force behind it. When God speaks, things that didn't exist come to exist. Let there be light. Light that didn't exist in the universe began to exist. And so he spends five days in creation using that generative force, the force of his word. And then on day six, he pivots and he even names it. What I'm about to do, what I'm about to create, this is the... The crown jewel I'm about to create. This is different than everything else I've created for the last five days. What I'm about to create is different because this creation is like me. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. And then he even reiterates, He says, In our likeness, so that we may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock. Over the wild animals and the creatures that move along the ground. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that what? They may rule. That there's something about that reflection, the piece of himself that he put in you and me, that sets us apart for dominion. It sets us above the rest of creation. And the thing that he put in us that's different than everybody else, even the world can see it. Even secular psychology that rejects God can see this unique thing that God put in us. It is the word. It's the logos. It's the fact that there's a, a gentleman named Noah Hadari. He wrote this, uh, this very popular book in secular psychology called Sapiens. If you want a history of the human, uh, the human species that actively excludes God. Sapiens is a great book for you. (laughs) I don't recommend this book. I'm just saying it's interesting because in this book Noah actually acknowledges this reality. He says why is it that if if all these species developed onto the earth, all these species, why humans, why have they come to rule over the rest of the earth? He said that the unique thing about humans is because when a human says something, there's something in the human mind that has the ability to say something that doesn't yet exist as true and to bring it into truth. Humans have this organizational ability to say, I'm going to start a business, and a business that doesn't exist three years later is booming, or I'm going to have a family, or we're going to move, or there's this unique image that gets reflected in us that our voice actually carries a power that we don't really consider most of the time, I think. The thing you want to remember is your voice doesn't just describe the world that you live in, it actually helps determine it. Because your voice reflects the generative power. I'm not saying that if you say, let there be light, I'm not saying that it's that. But if you say to yourself enough times, nothing is good enough for them, you are gonna live in that reality. That will be your world. If you go, uh, if you go a little bit further to the very next chapter, you say, okay, why did this thing that started as pure beauty, pure beauty, Why did this thing, that started as nothing but the voice of God, which is pure goodness. Why did it get to a place where it sets the world on fire? And we look at chapter 3, and it says, verse 3, it says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that you're not allowed to have any fun? Seriously? Did God really say that he doesn't want good things, that you're not allowed to make money, that you're not allowed to enjoy your life, you're not allowed to expect good things? And the woman is like, no, God didn't say that. He said, we can eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, we must not eat from this one tree, the one in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you will die. And the serpent replies, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that if you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. Knowing good and evil. So, so the first thing we want to notice is that the serpent doesn't tell Eve to do anything. The serpent doesn't tell Eve to eat the fruit. The serpent asks her a question, and then he inserts a story that is 50, 60, 70% true. But it's twisted, isn't it? He asks a question. Did he, did he really say it? And she says, no, it's just this one tree. He said this one tree or it's going to hurt us. And the serpent says, it's not going to hurt you. You're not going to die. Which, in effect, does Eve drop dead when she eats the fruit? She doesn't. That's not the kind of death God is talking about. There's just enough truth in the lie of the enemy that we take it for true but there's a poison in it that actually leaves us distrusting the source of life. The, the devastation in this moment is that the story leaves her doubting God. That was not part of her worldview until this moment. He asks a question. And watch what happens in the next verse. He asks a question and he says, God's insecure. God doesn't want you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't, he's withholding something good for you. And then it goes on, and when the woman saw How you guys know, when you entertain a lie, you see your world differently. That she had seen this tree her whole life. She had walked through that garden many times. She knew what that tree looked like. All of a sudden, the serpent insists this idea, this lie, this story, this logos that we're gonna look at in just a second. And all of a sudden, the tree looks different to her. Now it looks like something that's being withheld, when before it looked like something that she was being protected from. Does that make sense? It says, when she saw that the fruit of the tree was good, for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And the serpent inserts a counter-narrative into the human experience, into the history of humanity that didn't exist before this moment. That before this moment, there was one story. God says, I love you. You can trust me. I want nothing but your good. And if you want to know what it uh, feels like, To live truly emotionally, psychologically, and in Adam and Eve's case, physically naked, without shame. Then just trust my voice, and you'll never know shame. And then in a moment of fear, shame enters the story, and it says they saw their nakedness. There's the death. The death is their innocence. The death is the trust. The death is that it was effortless to believe God before this moment, and now they're not able to do it. I remember there was a, uh, a moment with a friend of mine. She was a med student while I was studying literature at UCSD. And we would hang out, and, and we got to know each other for several years. She became a really good friend of ours. And she would come over, and uh, we were actually, we, we had this little Christmas reunion. We had hung out with some other friends that we did a study group with, because we had Spanish together at UCSD. And all of us were reflecting on, you know, I don't think I've ever heard Emanuela complain I don't think I've ever heard, we're all talking, she's sitting in the circle, and I'm t- we're talking to the other group, and we're all, like kind of making fun of her and laughing, like, I don't think I've ever heard her say something negative about another person, and we turned to her like, what's with that, Manuel? Like, she needs to defend herself, like, she needs to stand up for the fact that she's, why are you so nice? Why don't you see your life more negatively? And she said this thing to me that I will never forget, she, because we were joking, we were silly, there's like levity, and she like really somber, she's like, I am afraid if I start complaining, I'll never be able to stop. She understood something that I never understood before that moment. That if I determine to view my life as a gift from God, that I will see every experience through that lens. But if I let that leak, if I let that come in, we become masters of outsourcing responsibility in our life. I will never forget, I am better at blame than anybody in this room. I am so good at there's a there's an example of this that I share frequently where uh, a couple years ago I was running late because I'm a person who's learned to have really good time management thank you Pastor John and I was running late and I was running behind and as I'm running out the door my wife asked me hey babe were you able to unload the dishwasher, because the night before she asked me to unload the dishwasher, I'm like, 100%, I got you, sweetie. And as I'm running around and I'm feeling frustrated, I'm starting to get like probably snappy with my kids. I'm starting to get less impatient because nobody knows how busy I am. And I'm starting to get probably really prickly. And she asked me this question. And then I have a moment. Do I look like a jerk and say, no, I didn't? How important is it? Or do I privately resent her and go unload the dishwasher? I went with the latter and I unloaded the dishwasher, and I'm really frustrated, and I'm on my way to work, and then I, I, I drive there, I get there, I'm walking to the door, and I realize I left my keys next to the dishwasher when I took them, put them down from my hand because I was walking out the door to unload the dishwasher. What is the first thing that comes out of Thanks a lot, Sarah. <laughs> because the anxiety of dealing with the fact that I had a chaotic morning because I wasn't responsible, because I cultivate chaos in my life sometimes, was too difficult for me, so I outsourced it. I said, you know what, Sarah? I'm going to blame that on you. I'm going to let you own that. And fear drives a little tiny wedge into the relationship. There's a, uh, there's a reality in this moment where the serpent insert, inserts a narrative, and it's not, look how good the fruit is. The serpent never says that. It's not, pressure, you should go try it. He never says that. He says... The person you're trusting isn't trustworthy. And Eve has the experience all of a sudden of being alone. And then she acts out of that aloneness. There's another verse in in James earlier in the things. that says, we are all tempted when by our own evil desires, we are dragged away and enticed. Where does evil desire come from? Because it's not intrinsic to you. You were not created with evil desire. Evil desire sprouts when fear enters our story. Evil desire for the tree sprouted. That became part of her worldview as soon as she started to doubt God. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? That you will see in your life what you allow spoken over your life. That the the voice we allow to take up dwelling in our hearts, we are going to see that reality. It's actually going to become flesh. When Sarah and I started dating, we were way too young. I was 15 and you were 14. Um, We were in third grade at the time. (laughs) No, there's actually a, it's a joke. Do you call it a joke if it's true? There's a reality in our family that I graduated high school because of Sarah Real, because of my wife. She helped me graduate high school. And we started dating really, really young. And we had like the full high school dating experience, right? Like the full category five high school drama. We were that. like, when people were talking about the couple on campus, it was Brian and Sarah. Did you hear that Brian and Sarah? Did you, they broke up. When we broke up in our junior year, it was like, it was, a, it was a campus event. So we went real deep. You have all the feelings because you have the hormones of an adult, but you don't yet have full access to your prefrontal cortex. And so we were pretty sure that we found our soulmates, the one person in the whole world that would complete us. And then when, um, When it came to an end, tragically, about a year later in our junior year, we uh, were pretty sure that we had dated the devil himself, both of us, I'm sure. And we dealt with that differently. Sarah dealt with that breakup by going on a month-long mission trip and getting radically on fire for God. I started rebound dating. And then that summer, I've come a long way, Pastor Becky. This wasn't this year. That summer, she comes back from this mission trip, and she looks different. You cannot spend a month passionately pursuing God and look the same, y'all. If you let me talk to the singles for a second, if you if you guys spend. 10% of the time that you spend either building your wealth, building your fitness level, building your car, if you spend 10% of that building your joy, you will have more people wanting to date you than you will have time for it. Joy is the most attractive quality, I promise. So she comes back, she's got the joy of, of radically, she's also got like mission field blowout hair and a tan. Her hair was auburn red at the time and you're like, dang I made a mistake and so we graduate high school I'm like keeping my distance she says it's cool I want to be friends Um, we graduate high school and she says I'm actually going to go do this internship in Texas for a year really intense full-time internship it's a remote experience I said you know I think God is calling me to Texas that's so (laughs) weird I'm gonna fast forward in the story that's a few years after that. We spent a few years rebuilding a friendship because when you got that kind of drama, things got to breathe for a second. We spent we a few years rebuilding our friendship and we get to a place where I, I drove up to Northern California. I was living in San Diego at the time. I said, I want to be your boyfriend. I actually sat her down at Starbucks and I told her that I wanted to date her exclusively and monogamously uh, because I wasn't messing around. I was like, I see what's here. And I'm not, I'm not waiting for somebody else to like come in. So I told her, these are my intentions. About 24 hours later, the next day after we start dating, we're driving from uh, Northern California to Southern California, because I lived down here at the time. She's going to visit some friends. And I said, since we've been dating 24 hours, let's talk about our future. And so we started to talk about our vision. She's like, you're laughing, but... And so we started and I was like, I think God, I think God is calling me to build marriages. I'm telling her this dream that's like the Lord has been burning in my heart. I'd read a lot of books. I knew a lot about relationships at that point. And she said, uh, she said, that's amazing. I think, I I feel like that's what I want to spend my life doing too. And then I said, it was like, it felt safe, right? Like, it felt like, oh, we're on the same page. I I think God's calling me to never have a fight with my wife. I thought she was going to be so impressed by that. Do you guys know what I, what I mean when I say she gave me the, um, the, uh, what is the, what is the Southern thing you say to dumb people? Bless your heart. She gave me the bless your heart face in that moment. And in true groundedness, she said, I think you're going to have a fight with your wife at some point. Do you notice how she said your wife at that point? It was a little bit like, there's just a hair of separation there. And we, we get married, and I remember there's this one moment where she was hanging out with her best friend in the living room, and I heard her, like, kind of telling her friend quietly, it's so weird. We've been married, like, like two months, three months at this point. And she said, it's so weird. Brian never gets, gets angry. And I heard those words, and I was just like, I have achieved. I am Jesus. <laughs> I am the perfect husband. I have no anger. What I didn't understand is I was actually not pursuing peace in my marriage. I was running from something that I had categorized as dangerous. I was running from a fear of anger. Because I grew up in a home where anger only came out in one form. It came out as rage. It came out as loud voices and slamming doors and worse. And so I categorized anger as a destructive thing. And then we dress it up and we say, I'm never going to have a fight with my wife. And then two years into marriage... Brian found his anger because it doesn't work when you try and disown something that God built into your psyche. That all I had to do was in my own trauma, in my pain, in my fear, I made an agreement with myself that this is a part of me that doesn't get a seat at the table. Anger is a dangerous thing, specifically male anger, which is something our culture really wants us to believe, is that male anger is toxic. I was working with a a young man just recently and he was talking about how dangerous it is because he, he, he got really worked up on, on the sports field and he punched the guy in the face. I said, okay, well, let's not do that again. But let's also not make the mistake of saying that the problem here is that you're dangerous because God made you dangerous. God made you a protector. God made you somebody who reflects his character. And I had grown up around anger in one form and I had said, that's not part of who I am. And so I make an inner vow, and I treat anger as dangerous, and when we treat and agree with with a, a lie like that, it becomes true. If you treat anger in your life as dangerous, it will come out dangerously. Does that make sense? When we look at this moment in John, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John explains why this is true. He says in the very first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. That word, word, in this setting, John uses the word lagos. Everybody say lagos. Logos. logos is a really deep word in Greek. Lagos, like when you use the word logos, it's actually one of the most diversely translated words in the Bible. If you look it up in a lexicon, I think it has 18 different translations in the Bible. Sometimes it's this, W-O-R-D. Sometimes it's translated utterance. Sometimes it's translated thought, like when... It says Jesus knew their thoughts. What it says is he knew their logos. He knew the thought and the voice and the word that was being stored up and activated in their hearts when the religious leaders were planning to kill him. It has all these different translations. And one of my favorites is it gets translated sometimes as story. That I wrote a story about male anger. That male anger is dangerous and destructive and it only causes devastation. And in that agreement, my anger became dangerous, and destructive, and it only came out in forms that were devastating. Why? Because chapter 14 says, The word became flesh. And I know that in this moment, we're talking about something unique and sacred. We're talking about the heart, the mind of God actually taking on human form, right? That Jesus is actually the embodiment of God Himself. The thoughts, the emotions, the feelings, the mind of God Himself. If you want to know what God is like, what love is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. This is also a warning. Remember, go back to Genesis chapter one. You are made in the likeness. Your voice echoes the generative power of his voice. The word that you allow to dwell in our hearts is going to become flesh. It is. If you agree that there's something wrong with you, If you agree nobody wants to be near you, people people who love me always leave me. If I live in that, if that word lives in me, I will behave in my body as if that's true. And that will actually become, I will become the embodiment of that lie. Does that make sense? What is the word that is becoming flesh in your life? Don't ask, is the word becoming flesh? What is the word that's becoming flesh? Is the word that's becoming flesh in my life right now, maybe, maybe there's different words in different areas of your life. In my business, am I operating in fear? In my relationships, am I armored up? Am I defended or am I vulnerable? And am I listening? What is the word that is currently becoming flesh in my life? Because we have one of two basic relationships with our thought life. How many of you guys have ever like, read a book or watched a movie that you enjoyed so much, there's literally a moment in the middle of the story where you wake up like, oh, I'm in a theater right now. Oh my gosh. I remember the first time this ever happened to me, I was reading the book, Jurassic Park. I don't remember how old I was. I didn't read a lot because uh, I I learned as an adult that I have have a neuro abnormality that makes reading a little bit challenging. So I didn't read a lot. I thought I was kind of a dumb kid actually. And then I was, one of the very first times I ever had this really immersive, engaged experience is when I was reading Jurassic Park and there's that scene in the kitchen where the raptors are walking around and I could feel my heart like, and I remember looking up, I actually remember the, the, the picture in my mind, looking up and realized, I'm in my living room right now. I was in that kitchen. And that represents one of two relationships that we can have with our thought life. We can engage with our thought life with an awareness that we are reading a story. We are telling ourselves a story. That story might be true. It might be in line with God. It also might be 60% true. It also might be the voice of the serpent saying, they really don't have your best interest at heart. And they point to all kinds of evidence because the reality is the one relationship, the relationship where we watch the movie, but we forget that it's a movie. We become so identified with our own thought life that we, we, we read, hear, and interpret them as reality itself is when our fear actually takes the steering wheel of our life. The other relationship is what Paul describes as taking thoughts captive and taking thought captive, it, re- it requires a posture shift. It requires me to realize that every thought that goes through my head is not fact. Yep. It is not truth. It is a thought. A thought, do we have that video? A thought is actually a really, a really concrete thing, it's something that very much exists in the physical world. A thought is an activated network. Of neurosynaptic cells. So what you're looking at in this picture is a cluster of neurosynaptic cells. Neurosynaptic cells are brain cells. It's not as fancy as the word sounds. I just really want you guys to know how much I know. It's a cluster of cells and brain cells are unique because brain cells talk to each other. Your skin cells don't talk to each other like this. Brain cells have tendrils that actually create links and they send messages back and forth between the cells. The way that we have automatic thoughts is because I have an experience, my father explodes in anger somebody interprets that experience for me, mom says, male anger is dangerous, whatever that might have looked like. I internalize that, and now a a network sets up that says, "When, when the world shows me male anger, when I feel anger, cue this pathway, danger. Treat it with fear. Treat it with hostility. Treat it as dangerous. Does that make sense? What you are watching in this video, to me, is seriously, it's miraculous because this is actually, we are looking at God's image in my, what you're looking at is a synaptic cell rerouting itself. So right over here on the right, you see this energy that's shifting around, shifting around, shifting around. They call that neuro growth hormone. Effectively, this person, let's say this person has a tenuous relationship with their mother-in-law. And every single time their mother-in-law comes up, he's like, oh my God, not again. Is she visiting? How long is she going to be here? What this person is choosing to do in this moment, he's saying, yep, yeah, we've had some hard moments, but man, without my mother-in-law, there'd be no wife. Man, I'm grateful for that. She's tough. She's, she's sassy. But I'm really grateful for her. If it, she brought so much goodness into my life. Or, Man, I love, I love her spirit. He is rerouting, and as he reroutes the energy of the neurosynaptic cell. The network reroutes itself. He does that a hundred times. What happens? He, his wife says, hey, mom's coming for a visit. And he's like, oh, awesome. When is she going to be here? Because the pathway in his life has changed. What has happened? A word has quite literally become flesh in the world. So when you're talking about the destruction of fear, what we're talking about is what Jesus says, you are the children of the enemy. Why? Not because... You are a dynamic entity. But because we see the world through the lens of the enemy's story. And when we align our view, when we align our beliefs, when we agree with God's word, that word actually becomes flesh in our body. And we walk out into the world and people do evil against us and we automatically respond the way Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is actually being made flesh in our bodies. Does that make sense? So when we go back to that story of this really broken young couple. He's been married like 2 years and he just had this realization that there might be a problem in my relationship with anger. That there's a there's a transition that now has to happen. That I have to come into is either I try harder, which is what most of us do a lot of the time. Addiction is all about a cycle repeated behavior, that could be a thought behavior, that could be a substance use behavior, that could be anything. Addiction is all about a repeated behavior even though that behavior elicits a negative result every single time. Add- healing addiction is not just about willpower. Willpower is just 1% of the first step. Willpower is when we say, oh, There's destruction in my life. I need to choose a different route. That's the only, that's the only row. willpower. Everything after that is first and foremost saying, okay, I have given this addiction, either this relationship to a thought or a substance. I've given it my source of safety. I turned to that thing for safety. So the first thing I have to do is I have to turn to God for safety. I have to turn to God to meet my relational needs. And the second thing I have to do is what Paul talks about. I have to renew my mind. I have to dig really deep. And I have to understand the covert, invisible belief systems that are fueling this idea that at the end of the day, I'm actually alone. And the only thing that's really there for me is this substance, or this behavior, or this pornographic outlet, or fill in the blank. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm young, I'm like 25 years old, 26 years old. I'm not sure why that was funny. I'm like 26 years <laughs> old. I was, I was trying to piece it together. Sorry, sorry. I'm like 26 years old, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with this? And uh, I got really, really lucky. A mentor of mine started to help me. I had to really dig deep. There was deliverance involved. Deliverance, hear this. Deliverance is where the Holy Spirit does what only the Holy Spirit can do. When we are living under oppression, I don't care how much you try and renew your mind, you don't have the ability to break demonic oppression. You need to speak, use that same power of our own voice, but activating the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need deliverance. That's step one. Step two... Is when God says, "Okay, now I need you to do what only you could do. Could I take away the belief system? Absolutely He could, but then we walk right back into it because unless we do the work of drilling and understanding, seeing the wound, healing that, that brokenness that we've been carrying, and allowing ourselves to grow, maybe I can see myself as somebody God is calling into greatness. One of the saddest things I see when people are operating in the world is they is they're walking around and, and maybe like God is actually even improving their life maybe things are getting better in their life and they're looking at their family members or their friends and the people in their life and they're looking at this devastation like man oh it'd be really nice if God showed up in their life and God's in your heart he's literally saying stop waiting for a move of God you are a move of God you need to walk in the belief that I am calling you to be a transformative force not only in your life but in the lives of people around you we can, we cannot give them something we don't have We cannot lead them deeper into the word than we ourselves are. Does that that make sense? That when I was really young, that moment of breakdown, that moment where, um, where I lost control, the moments that I lost control, I should say, early in my marriage, those were devastating. Those were moments that I had to rebuild trust with my wife. Those were moments where I had to own my behavior and say, I am so sorry. That wasn't anger, that was rage. That was repressed. that was me treating anger as hostile. And then I had to take one step further and realize I have actually made an agreement with a word of isolation, that there's something wrong with me. And that agreement, and my wife can't do the work for me, I don't care how much she loves me, supports me, forgives me, she can't do the work, I have to take that word to God through a counselor through a pastor, through a friend and I actually have to renew the word in my mind because the word is going to become flesh until it is replaced with a new word Amen? Yeah. Amen. Really awesome. Let me wow. Let me just leave you guys with this reminder that, that the verse in John 1.14 is one of the most, maybe the most hopeful thing that ever happened in, in the history of of the world is that God's word became flesh. God's word became a bridge for you not only to see what God is like, to see that you are seen and loved uniquely by God, but so that you would know that deep restoration is available to you right now, that God has made his dwelling in your life. All you need to do is be willing to allow him to dwell in your heart. And it's a warning It's a warning that if we aren't able to align those beliefs with the Word of God, that whatever alignment we create is going to become flesh in our lives. I'm going to pray for you guys and I'm going to hand back the the mic. Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for the power that you have entrusted in our hearts. Lord, I ask for the courage to break mindsets. I ask for the courage and the vulnerability to do what David says and fearlessly self-search. God, right now I'm reminded of of Johnny Mac's message about tithing that in a moment like that Johnny Mac comes up and he and he invites us into tithing and there's a moment where, where fear could say ah there's another church just wanting my money but you are inviting us to align with your word and have not just a knowledge but a true experience of your covering your love your protection your provision to dream and experience bigger than we have ever dreamed before Lord I ask for I ask for the hands and the voices in our lives to break those lies off of our life and to know who you are and to know by knowing you to actually know who we are. God, we love you. We surrender to you. And we put our trust in you.
2: In His Son's name we pray. Amen. Come on. Can we give it up for Dr. Brian? What an amazing word. He's like Pastor Jurgen to me. Sometimes, like, you read the scriptures, and you're like, wow, I love that story. And then he, he talks about it, and you're like, oh, my gosh, how did he see all that in that couple of, couple of verses? Incredible, incredible. What a gift. What a gift you are. Before we leave, I just give me, give me a couple of more minutes. I want to ask a question, and that is, um, have you ever invited Jesus into your life? It's hard for his word to become flesh in your life if you don't know him. So the first step is to know to know Jesus. So I want to ask, if we could all just close our eyes just for, just for a minute. Just so no one's looking around, I want to ask that question. If you're here today and you've never invited Jesus into your life, I want to give you that opportunity. Or maybe you're here today and you need a fresh start. Maybe that word spoke to you and you're like, man, I need to get back with, with God. I need to get back with God. I've been letting these secular words dwell in my heart and they've become flesh in my life. I want to cut that off. I don't want to rededicate myself to Jesus. So if you're one of those two people, can you just lift your hand right wherever you are so I can pray for you? If you've never invited Christ in or you want a fresh start, God bless you. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Over here. Thank you. To my left. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you over here. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Is there anybody else? Over here to my right thank you. Amen. Amen. We're going to pray a prayer. Pray a prayer right now and ask Jesus into our life. And we're going to ask the whole congregation to pray this prayer. And this is crazy. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that if we believe in our heart, that Jesus is Lord and confess with our mouth that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. In other words, we will spend eternity in heaven. So if you want to activate what you believe, you got to speak what you believe. And when you agree with what you believe by speaking it, it actually gives you eternal power. That's the kind of power he was talking about when you speak. So let's just pray this prayer. And um, those of you that lifted your hand, Jesus is going to come into your life and the greatest miracle any of us could ever ask for, spending eternity in heaven, is going to happen for you. So repeat after me, everybody in the congregation. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to die on a cross for my sins. Lord Jesus, today, I believe that you are the Christ and I declare that God raised you from the dead to save me. So today I declare that I am saved, that heaven is my home, and that God is my Father. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com